Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. Only a year ago, Rishi Sunak was a name known only to close followers of Westminster politics. Now the Chancellor of the Exchequer is the most important figure in the government after the Prime Minister and the man talked about as the most likely future leader of the country, or at least the Conservative Party. But who is he? Has he risen so quickly that his views are not fully formed and how broad are his interests and his appeal? In this podcast, the critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks to Michael Ashcroft, whose new book, Going for Broke, The Rise of Rishi Sunak, is the first biography to be written about the British government's coming man. Lord Ashcroft, the ascent of Rishi Sunak has been so rapid uh, this time last year, most people uh, who weren't really within the parliamentary estate um, probably hadn't really heard of them. Uh, that you will inevitably face questions about whether this biography, which is which is the first to be written about him, is premature. Is it premature? And, and um, can you only be making interim verdicts? Well, within the book, there were several challenges, and one was that with a relatively new figure, there is much less in the public domain. So you have to dig a bit further. And anything you can find is more likely to be new, which is rewarding. Also, most of the work was done during lockdown, so certain libraries and archives we would otherwise have visited were closed. On the other hand, practically everyone I wanted to talk to was at home, and we've all now learned how much you can do via Zoom. And another element was the fact that the story kept evolving as the book came along. And by the time the text was finished at about the end of September, the uh, situation was completely different from when I started in April. So there was always a challenge to have the story as up-to-date as possible by the time you have to finally stop writing and let it go to the printers. But the basic um, approach is the same as with my previous biographies, to read everything about them that you can get your hands on and find people who have known him at different stages of his life and ask them to talk about him. And as for whether the book is premature, the subtitle is The Rise of Rishi Sunak. There's obviously a lot more of the stories still to come, but I thought, that, I thought the story of how he emerged from nowhere, as far as the public were concerned, to be one of the most powerful figures in government dealing with a national crisis was worth um, telling in its own right. And it would be very helpful to get a, a little bit more of a sense about how you've written it. Written it. I mean, he, this isn't an authorised biography, but ha has um, Rishi Sunak given you cooperation? Has his family or, or other friends or colleagues talked to you? Well, we had a little bit of help from people around him on tracing the story of his grandparents and how his parents came to England. But beyond that, he didn't actively cooperate. Uh, as we know, he had other things to occupy him at the time, of course, but he wasn't obstructive either. He and his team knew about the project from the start, and thankfully uh, for me, they didn't discourage colleagues from talking to me. And, uh, well, I, I'm intrigued because, I mean, there's a very intrigued about Rishi Sunak's background because there's, there's a relatively common thread, at least historically, uh, running through those who reach the top in British politics that they, they've often experience hardship or trauma 
or, or family loss in their childhood, a father or mother who may have died. Uh, you write about the young Rishi having a, what many people reading this book will think was an almostly idyllic, perfectly happy childhood, almost a quite, dare I say, quite, in the best possible way, a quite normal childhood. How do you think this background and early years shaped him? Well, I think it shaped him in several important ways. I mean, off the top of my head, most immediately, there would be the example of his parents. His father was a GP and his mother was a pharmacist. So although they would have had a comfortable living, paying the fees at Winchester would have been a big sacrifice for them. And he would have known the story of his parents coming to England, the great endeavor that was for them, and the huge value they put on education, both for themselves and their children. So I imagine all of that would set quite a powerful example of what it's possible to achieve in life, but that nothing is handed to you on a plate. It takes work and effort and discipline and determination. But he also talks about their example of service, how people would often say to him, um, oh, you're Dr. Sunak's son or Mrs. Sunak's son. And they would have a story about how they had helped them. And he found that inspiring, I think, and it probably helped instill a sense of responsibility. And of course, his cultural background helped to shape him too. He's talked about how his family would carry on their cultural traditions while being absolutely part of their local community in England. At the weekend, he would go to the Hindu temple and to football matches at his beloved Southampton. He never felt any contradiction between two ways of life. And there was, if you can recall, the occasional encounter with racism, which he talked about during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, and which he obviously found upsetting. But I think overall, his experience um, has given him an optimistic view of the life that immigrant families can have in, uh, in Britain. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's the, the Anglo experience and the Indian experience of which you've just spoken. There's, you know, he went to Winchester, Oxford and Stanford. He worked as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. Many people would say he was a great insider, almost an establishment figure. Do you think he considers himself as an establishment figure or does he think of himself as, as the son of immigrants who's, who's either battled against the system or at any rate has been facing a strong current? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, and I doubt very much that he sees himself as part of the establishment, probably even now. We're speculating slightly, but I think he would have thought of himself more as an outsider, at least in the early stages. Getting into Oxford, doing well at Goldman Sachs, getting an MBA at Stanford, these are all things he had to work for to achieve on his own merits. And although his friend, James Forsyth, political editor of The Spectator, and his best man at his wedding, was obviously very well connected in politics and would have given him good advice, that didn't amount to an inside track into Parliament. He threw his hat into the ring for the Richmond-Yorkshire constituency, and he blew them away. Well, probably... Probably somewhat to his own surprise and has continued to rise on his own merits. So I think he would see his success as self-made and with some justification.
many self-made people are, you know, the, the experience of rising to the top sometimes against the odds makes them, you know, quite hard and sometimes quite brittle people. But um, you, you cite Richard Sharp, who, who was his um, former boss at Goldman's, advising him not to go into politics because he, he was too, too nice for, for uh, as Sharp put it, such dirty business. Uh, it's interesting reading your book, uh, how few people who know him well seem to have much that's very negative, they won't say bitchy, to say about him. Um, so, perversely, is, is this a weakness for the job he, he now has? Well, I suppose you start off on, the, on saying it doesn't seem to have held him back and so far, I would say it has actually been more of a strength. The ability he has to win people over, to gain their respect, to build relationships and alliances has definitely been an integral and important part of his success. And it's something that people mention again and again in the book. The fact that his rise has provoked so little resentment in the Parliamentary Conservative Party is also a good indicator of how much people like him. And interestingly, I think those interpersonal skills are partly innate and partly something he has worked on as part of his professional career, especially at Goldman Sachs, where he continually had to impress people at all levels. And as for whether being nice could turn into a disadvantage, things are obviously how can we put it, going to get stickier for him over the next few months, as he will increasingly have to be the person who says no to things rather than the one unveiling yet more largesse. And that will take a lot of steel, and we're starting to see that. But someone mentions in the book, I think it's a former minister, with Rishi, there are not weaknesses so much as things we don't yet know. We we haven't seen how he would cope with unpopularity, or dare I say it, a leadership campaign, which can quickly turn into a bit of a knife fight. But having said all that, you don't succeed in the city and the hedge fund world and get this far in politics without a, a certain amount of toughness and determination. Mm, well, you, you spoke Lord Ashcroft a moment ago about uh, you, the fact that he's been largesse giving out money, but will soon have to get tough in, 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 in raising money. I mean, is it right to say he's, he's at heart a fiscal conservative? One wouldn't necessarily see that in, in what's happened during this year, but this year is exceptional circumstances. He's a fiscal conservative, but not a, a social conservative. I mean, I do wonder uh, you know, how clued up or, or even interested he is in political issues beyond raising and spending money. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, it seems odd to describe him as a fiscal conservative, given the amount he's been spending and borrowing. But I do think that's where his instincts lie. And one of his earliest speeches, if you recall, in the House of Commons, was about why the government should limit public spending to no more than 37% of GDP, which now, of course, seems like a distant dream. Otherwise, I put him down as a fairly mainstream social and economic liberal. The one issue I can think of where he has clashed with Tory MPs was the plan to liberalize Sunday trading, which was sw swiftly ditched after a backbench revolt. So perhaps a pragmatic liberal would be a good way to put it. 
And I think the economy really is his main interest, including international trade and promoting ideas like Freeport. But he's had to get to grips with a lot of other areas. In his first ministerial job, he was dealing with local government finance, which is famously tedious and impenetrable subject. But he mastered the brief in no time. And his constituency has also taught him a lot. He quickly had to become fluent in agriculture policy and farm subsidies, uh, for example. Uh, so to go back to your question, he is good at becoming clued up on new subjects. That's one of his great strengths. But how interesting he finds them all is a slightly different question. I want to turn uh, to, to, to Brexit. Um, an ambitious-minded man who, who had um, maybe not made the, the European Union a, a core issue through his career might, might have been expected to, to back remain in the, the 2016 EU referendum. I mean, they were the, the more establishment choice and more expected to win. Um, Sunak backed leave, um, yet he's never seemed to have been um, really identified on one side or the other in what's sometimes been a rather toxic uh, divide. What, what do you think made him a lever, and why do you think he's avoided being identified too strongly with, with either side in this rather often rather binary um, debate? Well, you're right that now that being pro-Brexit is the orthodox position in the Conservative Party, it's easy to forget that backing leave was a bold decision to take for someone like Rishi at that time, just an ambitious young member of parliament in the Cameron years. And as the book records, he took a very objective, unemotional approach to that decision. He likes to uh, quote his father-in-law, who often says, in God we trust, but everyone else needs to bring data to the table. So he considered all the arguments and decided that on balance, Britain would be better off out, especially when it came to the ability to do free trade deals with other countries, at which he felt the EU was painfully slow. I think perhaps his roots in India and the time he spent in the US also gave him a more global perspective that Britain could look further afield than Europe. And I think the reasons he's avoided being identified too strongly as a Brexiteer is that he came to prominence when the Brexit wars were essentially over. He was a junior minister during the battle over the withdrawal agreement, and uh, he decided to keep his head down and get on with his job rather than causing trouble or adding to the list of resignations, which as he correctly judged would not have changed the course of history. And once he became chancellor, there was a new story in town. Well, I mean, he's, you say once he became chancellor, I mean, he, he's an accidental chancellor in the sense that, you know, but, but for a, a squabble over advisors with Dominic Cummings, is Sajid Javid who would still be at the treasury uh, during the, these difficult times. D do you feel that, that, that um, Rishi Sunak was catapulted into 11 Downing Street before he had fully formed his ideas uh, in, to shape, well, we're going to call them uh, Sunanomics, even though no, no one else really yet has. Uh, but, but if there is such a thing as, as Sunanomics, what, what would it look like? Or at least, what, what would it look like if COVID hadn't intervened? Well, as you've struggled over the word, I can't imagine why Sunanomics isn't on the tip of everyone's tongue. Although I do ask in the book what Sunakism might turn out to be. We would need a parallel universe to find out. 
But I think in its purest form, his approach to economic policy would be a lot more orthodox than, than the one we're seeing. As I've already said, he's naturally a fiscal conservative. He sees a limited role for the state, and he has a deep understanding that prosperity doesn't appear out of nowhere. His training in economics, his experience of investing, even his own upbringing tells him that. And at the same time, he's part of a government that was elected on a program of leveling up, investing huge sums in infrastructure, which very much reflects Boris's priorities. And we saw the first steps towards that in Rishi's first budget in March, before we saw uh, the, uh, the full extent of the COVID crisis. And as uh, William Hague points out in the book, that agenda is important to it. He can see the Tees Valley from near his home in Yorkshire. And whether or not that area is successfully regenerated is something he will see as a big test of what the government's doing. But left to his own devices, I think he would take a more traditional conservative approach to tax and spending and the role of the state. But that's not the political and economic climate that he currently finds himself in. Well, I mean, it's often the case that a successful government is one in which Prime Minister and Chancellor are in reasonably happy relations with one another. It does seem that although Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are temperamentally rather different, they are enjoying a good relationship, whatever tensions there may be over COVID policy. What's the secret of that success? Is it that Boris actually just isn't very interested in economic detail, so leaves Rishi Sunak to get on with it? I think that it's more to do with the fact that Rishi has been someone who brings him solutions rather than just uh, problems. Uh, he's come up with the furlough and other schemes uh, to prevent the economy collapsing. He's someone the public have confidence in. And that kind of competence and calming influence has obviously been at a premium. In, in these circumstances, anything that helps keep the show on the road is going to go down well with the Prime Minister. But I think they're very conscious of the history of that relationship. If you think of Thatcher and Lawson, Major and Lamont, uh, Blair and Brown, uh, Theresa May and Hammond, and the way Cameron got on with Osborne is the exception rather than the rule. Boris and Rishi will be determined to avoid that trap, I believe. And they go out of their way to spend more time with each other than they absolutely have to. So that they're constantly talking and not letting any cracks appear. Mm. Well, um, uh, th there's a perception which may or may not be accurate. Uh, uh, people, even you know, seasoned journalists in, in the lobby aren't entirely clear that, that Rishi Sunak is a bit of a hawk on, on covid and Boris Johnson is more of a dove, a dove in, in, in the sense of wanting more restrictions, playing it safer. Um, I, I mean, is the, the, with the November lockdown and, and the you know, prolonged furlough now until March in sight, is actually, I mean, well, two points. Is firstly, is, is Sunak a bit more keen to get things going, um, given that, that he can see that what's happening to the economy? Uh, but is he perhaps hesitant to, to use up his political capital uh, in order to challenge um, uh, Boris Johnson and maybe Matt Hancock and one or two others in the cabinet uh, uh, to push his case? 
I don't think his strength in cabinet is in question. I mean, his position is probably as strong as anyone's. It's true he's been hawkish, and he was the biggest advocate for opening up during the first lockdown. But I think Boris's own instincts are to be much more cautious, not least because of his own horrendous experience with the virus. And politically, I think their biggest terror is of the NHS being overwhelmed. If people were being turned away from hospitals, as well as being a health disaster, that would be a political disaster that would live in the memory as long as the winter of discontent, rubbish piling up in the streets, the dead going unburied and all the rest of it. And my reading of it is that the figures that ministers were being presented with by the scientists a few weeks ago were enough to really spook them. So they felt another lockdown was the only sensible option. And whether that was the right decision is a different question, of course. Mm. Well, you're, you're the biographer of, of Rishi Sunak, and it's, it's always unfair to ask you a, a prediction question. Uh, but, I mean, I, given the, the extent of the borrowing that's taken place, do, is it your instinct, or, or perhaps more importantly, is it Rishi Sunak's instinct to uh, pay back through uh, tax through higher taxes, you know, there's a lot of rumble going on about the prospect of, of higher capital gains tax, for example, uh, or to just maintain high borrowing in the hope that, that uh, over a long period of time, economic growth and perhaps a little bit of inflation, you know, just burns off that borrowing. I, I think he'll hate both of those options and he'll certainly be aiming for economic growth to take care of some of it. Uh, there is a good argument that the borrowing directly related to the crisis should be treated like, let's say, war debt. And he may try and draw a distinction between that as a one-off and day-to-day -day spending and borrowing that he'll want to get under control. Spending is going to be very hard to curb since Boris is completely allergic to anything that could be described as austerity. So I'd be surprised if he manages to get through the next couple of years without raising taxes at all. But it's a political problem as much as an economic one. He's caught between keeping the confidence of the markets on the one hand and Tory MPs on the other, especially the new intake who are not the kind of small state conservatives we remember from the past and will resist not just tax rises, but anything that looks like a cut that might hurt their blue wall constituents. Handling all that will probably be his biggest political test so far. Well, I mean, he's um, at the Treasury at a time when there's greatest collapse in GDP for 300 years, there's record borrowing, a, a terrible deficit. Most of us in that position wouldn't sleep a wink. Uh, he must say he seems pretty cool, calm and collected about it. Is it your sense that, in a way, that you know, the Treasury is, his, is his, the natural place for him? It, it is his calling. Um, how driven is he for the ultimate position of the Premiership? Uh, and, and if he is, I mean, do, does he have the, the wider uh, range of skills necessary, necessary to, to succeed at that? Does he want it? He says not. But if that's true, it would make him an even more remarkable politician. Having said that, I'll be surprised if he doesn't try his luck when it arises. That's not to say he would necessarily get it. 
uh, uh, once he gets to a leadership election, you can never be sure what the Conservative Party is going to do. It will depend who he's up against, whether he needs that extra edge of steel we were talking about earlier, and the vision he is able to sell the party. What is it in political terms that runs through Rishi like a stick of rock? Is it fine to say you're unencumbered by dogma during a national crisis, but in a tough leadership fight, that could be made to look like a lack of principle or direction? And as for whether he'd be a success of it, you never really know until you see someone in action. But I think he'd be good. Very different to what we have now. I think he would be very methodical. We'd see a lot of attention to detail. I think he'd be pragmatic and decisive and able to build alliances with other leaders. But having to lead a government and a campaign would bring out a new side in it. Well, a new side in him that we've yet to see in full, I think. So just as a final thought, uh, um, I, I wonder how soon you imagine you might be writing the sequel to Going, going for Broke. Well, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't begin until I finish my current book, which is the unauthorized biography of Keir Starmer, which is already a fascinating uh, uh, project. But I did say to Rishi that when I do come to write his sequel, uh, that it won't be entitled The Rise and Fall of Rishi Sunak. Well, uh, Lord Ashcroft, uh, author of Going for Broke, The Rise of Rishi Sunak, uh, thank you very much for your insights about the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.